I, um, I, I'm going to need your help just for, just for a moment. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, and then we'll, we'll not have to answer out loud, um, unless you want to. You know me. I kind of like that, but no, no, uh, no pressure. Uh, first thought um, I'd like for you to tuck away is imagine that you are pulling up to one of the intersections in Denver where people who panhandle frequent. You, you maybe know the intersection, you're anticipating it, and you're sort of doing the, the, the car math as you're driving up, and you know for sure the light's going to turn red and you're going to be the first car in line. All right? So I just want you to think about what is your instinct as you are driving and you're anticipating that moment. Now, not what is your behavior, because we can, you know, we can sort of train ourselves to overcome our instincts. So not what do you do necessarily, but what would you sort of want to do? What would be your default? What are you feeling? What are your instincts as you pull up to the intersection and there will be a person panhandling? Just think on that for one second. And then the second question, I'd like for you to tuck away, is I'd like for you to identify something that you are intrinsically good at, a way that people describe you. Uh, it could be a character quality, it could be a skill, a talent, but something that is sort of intrinsic into who you are and your personality, something you don't try that hard. It, it's, it's sort of just kind of who you are. It comes out. Okay, you got those two? All right. I, um, I chose today's passage, honestly, kind of keeping the sort of the Easter high going, you know? Um, it, it's in terms of the timeline of the scripture, this story occurs pretty soon right after Easter. It, it comes right after Pentecost, so we know it's not quite two months later. And um, it's found in Acts chapter 3. So I'll find that and then we'll um, read that together. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. About three o'clock, people would say. And a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to seek alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to, re some, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, and he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood, and he began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement. 
at what had happened to him. Okay, a little confession. I've got three sermons to give today. And so, and all three sermons are answering the question, what does church look like? Sermon number one is church is a place that is filled with powerful people. What do I mean by that? We see we are a place that can offer dignity to every human, every person. We have that power. Remember my uh, question number one? Now, I'm, I'm sure there's variations of answers. Let me see if I can express what is the most common. As we're driving up to the stop sign or the stoplight, we begin to have at least an interior conversation about eye contact. Like we begin to negotiate, am I going to look at this person in the eye? Now, I have no condemnation on the interior conversation you're having. It's an anxiety that we all experience. And everybody sort of navigates those moments in different ways. And in different seasons of our life. Sometimes you, you want to give the money. And then you read a book that says that's not helpful, and so you don't want to give the money. But you give them a little snack. or There's just a million ways to handle it. That's not so much the point. But the point is, this whole idea of the eye contact with somebody who is desperately in need is, well, it's awkward. And what I kind of like about this story is that in this story, that's not a new experience. That's a human experience. And I think it's on purpose that Dr. Luke included in his narrative, his description of what happened, this idea of the eye contact. In one sense, it doesn't change the story any. I mean, he didn't have to put that in, right? So why does he put that in? Because I think he's talking about what's happened to this post-Easter high, these people who have now experienced the resurrected Jesus, and the Holy Spirit has come, and what life looks like for them. And I'm saying, this is about church. This is a vision of church. In the passage, it just says that Peter and John said to him, look at us. It's a, the, the analogy of using the street corner person is a little, not quite the same as what perhaps would be a better image. If you've been on the 16th Street Mall, that's perhaps a more, a more um, a close, closer image to what might be happening. 16th Street Mall, the pedestrian mall here in downtown Denver. It's similar to what I've experienced when I've traveled in other places in the world, some, some densely urban populations, either in Europe or in Asia, where you have quite a few people who are sitting on the sidewalks with simply a cup out. And sort of the, the it seems like the cultural negotiation is nobody looks at anybody. There's a, almost a, a song being sung, a, a, a repeated phrase. The person might be saying, or they might have a sign, 
But nobody really looks at anybody. You just drop your coin and you just keep moving, right? That, that's sort of what's happening here. But Peter says, look at us. I was just listening this week to, a, to an NPR podcast about, about people in pain. Nobody intends it, but, but most people in ex- experience, when they're in a, in a moment in their life that would be described as great pain, someone goes to prison, someone um, has a, an addiction that becomes discovered, someone discovers a disease, that most people describe a loss at some level of relationship. And the person that was talking about that said, talking about in their research, it's because people feel powerless. As I'm driving up to the, to the stop sign, in, in my brain, I can't, I can't fix what they need. I, I don't have what they need. It feels overwhelming. And so sometimes I look away. I've tried, to, I've tried to discipline myself not to do that, but I'm just confessing my, my instinct. If somebody has a Bible, somebody look up Psalm 3-3. Who's got a Bible to be willing to read that out loud, loudly for us? All right, right there. Psalm 3-3. Thinking about this exchange, both Peter asking them, asking the beggar to look. Did you find it? All right, read it loudly. No, just Psalm 3, 3, verse 3. Yep. Yep, not the whole book of Psalms. That's it. No, not Psalm 33. Psalm 3, verse 3. And the one who lifts up my head. Here's what I think. I think church is filled with powerful people because we have the ability to say, look at me. I can, I have, I can do this. I have the resource to look at you. I can sort of be the arms and feet of Jesus. I can be his voice and I can say, lift up your head and look at me because I have something that money can't buy. Question number two. Intrinsically, you have something that, that, is, that makes you uniquely you. It's a positive gift to the world. If you're, if you're struggling thinking about your, sort of your contribution, and then now let me, let me own that the experience of Peter and John and their enthusiasm to have the man look at them might, might be colored a bit with them knowing that they had the gift of healing. You may have that gift, but in my experience, that's one of those rare gifts. Not many people I ask, hey, what's your contribution to the world? When I touch somebody, they get better every time. No offense to any doctors in the room, but even you aren't hundred percent, right? So, I don't want to take away from that, and I understand that they, they, they sort of probably were getting a little excited when they, they saw the opportunity. 
but church is filled with people who have the opportunity and have the resources to give not only dignity, but more than that. Here's a way to think about it. I, I don't, this is just my own little, this is, take it for what it's worth. But do you remember at the end of uh, Corinthians 13, that's really a famous part about love, and it, the very last sentence says, and there are these three, faith, hope, and love. Here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you to think about in just a moment to take your gift to the world. I want you to categorize it under one of these three. I think everybody's sort of gift and way to be in the world might fall under one of these three categories. Faith, hope, and love. Faith. You have the ability to pray. That's one of your instincts. When you meet somebody in need and in crisis, you have this instinct, this default moment where you pray. You constantly believe in God's goodness. I'm not saying you never have a little waiver, but, but primarily your life could be, you, you, that's not one of your deep struggles, that God is good. You have a childlike trust in the person of Jesus. See, it may be that your falls under this faith gift, all right? I'm going to keep going. Hope. You never feel like life will never get better. That's not who you are. You are what people call optimistic. You can see a way out of the darkness. You have a gift of hope and love. Your affection is always available. Regardless of what somebody might do or experience, you don't sense this, this, this lack of, of wanting to be with them. You might be a hugger. You have a deep empathy for those in pain. Church is filled with powerful people who offer dignity, who offer eye contact, and who can give faith or hope or love. Sermon two. Picture two. The story invites us not only to experience it through the eyes and hands and experiences of Peter and John, but most stories in the scripture invite us to be more 360 in our experience and to find ourselves in all the people in the story. Church is filled with desperately broken people people whose greatest need could never be solved with money. There's not enough money in the world to solve the great need. I, um, I know that some of us have have wanted to lean into that part of the story. But it can be difficult because we've experienced in this culture, this world called church, a world that maybe isn't so inviting to that. Many of us, me included, have created a, or have this instinct that somehow I have to, I have to fake it. It's been a long time ago. I think my son was 10. So it's been almost 25 years ago. 
And there was coming to town, and I don't remember what they were called. I, I call them the, the, the power guys gospel presentation. It, they were all big weightlifter guys. And they were huge, you know, these big men. And was it called power? Power team. That's what it was, the power team. Yeah. And I'm not now, so I want to be careful. I'm sure they did great work. You may, I'm, yeah, nobody qualifies here. But anyhow, so, no offense. I'm not saying you're not powerful, but you're not taking up three seats. But anyhow, I mean, and these guys did. I mean, they were big. And, and it was, and, and they had some notoriety. And, and so my son invited a couple of his buddies, and we went. Now, it was fun, and, and it was kind of cool. You know, they, they took water, bo- um, you know, the, you know, water bottles, and they blew, they blew them up, and they ripped um, phone books. But there was this one part, and I'll admit it really bothered me. So there was on stage this telephone pole, and it had dug out of it um, a, little, a little place where they put two big handles. And it was, no, no doubt, big and heavy. And the guy picked it up, and he was going to clean and jerk it. So he was going to pick it up and put it over his head. And he got about halfway, and he couldn't do it. He tried a couple times. So he asked the, the power team to come pray for him. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just telling you my experience. I don't know that my experience is true. I'm just telling you what I experienced. And so they prayed for him. What do you think happened next? Oh my gosh, it's a miracle. How did you guess? Well, the reason you guessed is I'm pretty sure this wasn't the first city they've tried this. This was not the first time they've tried this. It was so transparently rehearsed. And it so bugged me. Like, there was a million ways you could have been honest about that. Like, just go, I do this all the time. <laughs> now, just for illustration, I'm going to pretend like I can't. I could have lived with that. But I could not live that in the moment all these kids were supposed to believe, Dad, did you see that? He couldn't lift it until they prayed. <laughs> okay, apparently, after 25 years, I still have work to do in my life. But anyhow... I'm getting all worked up right now about it, but it's, I, so often, not, not that story, but so often I've heard people talk about this experience of church that sounds like that, it, it, that it's, you fake it till you make it. Now this isn't true for everybody, and I don't want to, diminish the, as we enter this story, what it would be like, and some of you maybe have experienced the, you know, unbelievable, abject financial poverty. I know in our culture that it's almost unheard of, or I want to be careful, but it's almost impossible for someone to starve to death. I'm not saying that people aren't food, food insecure, I'm not saying that people don't go hungry. I'm not saying that people don't have good nutrition. All of that is true. But it's very, very, very rare that someone starves to death. That wasn't true in Jesus' day. People did starve to death, and especially people whose only recourse 
was to beg. But moving up Maslow's hierarchy, that if that isn't our greatest need, if we've met that at some level, that we have other needs that are equally as pressing. And again, I've just summarized them as these three stories that seem to be the human and most common experiences. I do not belong. I have no value. And I am too bad. I am too shameful. That in the way that we might have a, have a natural bent towards the faith, hope, or love, we might be better at one of those, that it seems like most of us have some, some connection to one of those stories. I do not belong. I have no intrinsic value. And I've been too bad, too sinful, too shameful. My story, I most often can connect to the feeling that I don't belong. Some days are better than other days, but I carry that with me. I remember, I remember when I was in fifth grade. In fifth grade, I moved from Alabama to Colorado. We moved in August, and about a week later, school started. I remember going to school, and I talked like this, just like this. Everybody I knew talked like that. I didn't know that you didn't say, hey, y'all want to get a Coke? And then you'd ask them what kind. I didn't know that you didn't go to the movie house. I didn't know people didn't say y'all. But I was quickly informed. <laughs> I went back not soon, I went to Alabama not soon after, and I was in fifth grade. And I had almost no accent. I've had this ability to, to blend and form and to fit in. And so I, I learned to belong. I couldn't speak in a way that was native to me. That's no big deal if I can belong, but here's the problem. When, when I change what is intrinsically who I am to belong, I never actually belong. It actually makes the belonging harder because I have to be something I'm not. One of the reasons that church can become so incredibly difficult is our need to belong is so, is so palatable. And somehow we intuit that, man, everybody sure got their stuff together. I'm the weird one here. So to belong, I will suppress my own story of doubt and insecurity and wonder. But then I feel even more alone. You're, you may connect to a different part. I have no intrinsic value or... I've been too bad. I'm unforgivable. I would say that each of us has a deficit of faith or hope or love. Remember, that second question is, God, the, the, the marvelous creator, 
made you intentionally good at something. I, I was thinking, for me, I sometimes think, I, I kind of like helping people laugh, and it kind of levels the playing field. I don't, I don't know how or why, it's just part. I, I think, and it... But God, if he intentionally made me good at something, he intentionally made me bad at something. God intentionally created in me a deficit, a a place in life where I am not naturally faithful or hopeful or loving. If church are these two pictures that we are people who are Um, have amazing power to offer dignity and, and, and faith, hope, and love, and we are a picture of people who are desperately, desperately broken and deficient. It begs the question, why? And if you thought it was hard to publicly say out loud what you're good at, which I know would have created anxiety, Imagine publicly saying where you're deficient. Which leads me to this third picture of church. Church is the marketplace where powerful people meet needy people with the gifts of Jesus. My, um, my early coming to Christ in ninth grade was at a small little Baptist church up the street from me that was so small that there were literally about five of us in the youth group. And there were th- three boys, Kenny, Jeff, and me, who primarily were there every, every time the doors opened. The three of us were there. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and then we hung out together. We found each other. We didn't, none of us fit well in a world outside of this little youth group. But that became our world. And we were close, very close. I graduated high school. I went, I went on to college and pursued a, going into ministry, and as often happens, you know, you, you don't have the same kind of at least in my world, we didn't stay in touch that well. I was 41, I believe, when I got a phone call from Kenny, and his words were, Jeff has died. I said, oh, Kenny, what happened? And he filled in this gap of about six or seven years where I hadn't talked to Jeff. Jeff had Um, gone through a terrible divorce, and he lost custody of his two little girls, became severely depressed, and Jeff's drug of choice became food. And he began to numb himself with unbelievable amounts of food, so much so that he became disabled. 
He qualified for disability or food stamps. I don't remember how the story went, but he moved to a little tiny town in Texas. I remember that, where life was cheap. And he never left the house. He had some friends that would bring him groceries. And he ate himself to death. He went blind from diabetes. He was, he was so large, he became immobile but he couldn't stop. And Jeff never called me. If you had a friend like Jeff, in the most desperate situation, managing unbelievable pain, and they called you, would you respond? I bet everybody here would at some level. You would respond. You see, that's really not the important question. The important question is, if you were desperately in need, would you call somebody? I think the church is filled with amazing people who have amazing gifts to give of dignity and faith and hope and love. But the cost... of being needy, of being seen as a person who is needy, is so high. I've thought about that word a lot. I thought in my own, how many times have I phrased this sentence, what if people think I'm needy? The terror in our culture of being perceived as a person who is too needy. There is no instinct in us that wants that. Somehow that's the only way we enter into the story of our own healing. I'm going to give you three, three words that will help as we long to become the place, the marketplace, where the exchange of neediness and giftedness finds itself. There's three ways in which we can come alongside our neediness and our friend's neediness. It's to, for, and with. Maybe I've shared this with you, but real quickly, to is sort of this paternal way of helping. There are moments, brief moments, where it might be necessary, but as a general way of, of sort of entering into the world of the exchange of, of neediness and gifting, it's not a very helpful way because it's always sort of a power-up way. It's a way in which I've got answers, I've got my stuff together, and I will help you. I will lift you to where I am. And then there's the, the four exchange. Some people call it a maternal type of helping, which is my needs have nothing to do. I, I need nothing. I, it's all about you. So as if we were picturing sort of a climbing metaphor, I'm below just pushing. I'm pushing. I'm doing all the work. I think what the gospel calls us to is a with. Every time in the scriptures you see a with. Some people have enormous talents in some areas, but I'm telling you that means they have some deficit also. And that the gospel is about with. Church is described 
as with. As we're living out the post-Easter high and experience, I want us to experience our world is longing for a people that know their power, that they have the power to give dignity, to look people in the eye, and to offer some little sliver of faith, hope, or love, and at the same time to gift this world with the courage to be needy and to own that they have deep and long stories about belonging and value and feeling loved. And the church becomes the marketplace where we exchange and together we find our healing. Let's pray together. Lord, we dream, we intuit what could be. We have tasted and you are good. But Lord, this isn't our dream. I know that you put this dream in us. This, this desire to heal these deep and long stories. And I know it's no less miraculous than someone who's been lame to rise up and walk. So here's what I pray for me and I pray for my friends. Help us own with confidence the power that through your Holy Spirit you have given us. Help us offer that. Oh, Lord, give us the courage to be honest about what we need. Oh, God, strike from our brains and our instincts that needy is bad. What a, what a lie we've been told. And oh, God, I pray for, I pray for our little marketplace here, this, this thing you call your body, this thing you created that we would freely give and receive. In Jesus' name, amen. As is the, if you're a guest or this is your first time, it's, it's our experience and our tradition here to always share the Lord's Supper. This is why we come together. And it isn't a, it, it's not a ritual that we do so we can check it off and make sure we've done the ritual. It's because this is the place where we recenter on what is our, our story. Who are we? What is my identity? And it is found in Jesus' proclamation on the night that he was betrayed. He said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat this. You're, you're invited into the healing that Jesus is offering you. And in the same way, it says he took the... He took the cup, which he said was the blood of the new covenant, which is a, a new way of, of thinking. A, a covenant is a deal. And Jesus said, hey, I've got a whole new deal. Relating to God is going to be all on me, not on you. The story that you've got to be good enough, you've got to get your stuff together before God's going to love you or accept you or value you, a terrible story. And my death on the cross is going to prove that. In the uh, white cups, I'm so sorry, is juice. Yep. 
I'm sorry, man. I got no short-term memory. I'm sorry, man. I got no short-term memory. <laughs> and so we invite you. The table's opened. All that would want to taste that the Lord is good and receive this gift of bread and blood. As we uh, walk in the world this week, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Amen.